Good morning. Feels like I haven't seen y'all since last year. Sorry, I couldn't avoid it. Now, I don't know what Lee and Debbie Andrews did during the announcements. Um, I wasn't able to watch it, but I heard y'all cracking up. It must have been good. But one thing I do want to emphasize is uh, you heard an announcement about a, a marriage seminar that's upcoming. Um, that is something that I strongly encourage uh, those who are married this morning to highly consider. Um, there are only 12 spots available for that event. Uh, there is a fee of $100 uh, for that. But that is a minuscule cost. If we were offering this or you were pursuing this someplace else, an event like that would be $500. Um, so please consider, while spaces are still available, uh, signing up for that. Uh, you can secure your spot for a $40 deposit, and then the balance will be due at the end of the month. So with that being said, I invite you to turn with me to Luke in the first chapter. This morning I read beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. And I have some breaking news for us here at the beginning of 2023, a year that is just a few hours old. 2022 is behind us. And most of 2023 lay before us. And setting our minds on what's to come, I think for each of us, we will appreciate where, where God is leading us at the start of this new year. Now, offering you some sort of long-term objective, our heading is set in preaching through this book of the Bible, the, the gospel according to Luke. For the last year, messages were brought to you, were drawn from what we were each reading uh, as a church family, as we read through the Bible in a chronological order. As we shift away from that, we come to consider what Luke has for us. Our primary heading for the next few weeks is with the focus of reigniting the fire. In a sense, recapturing the sense of what we lose focus on in our Christian walks. Our affection for our Savior. In our minds, Jesus so often becomes a rule giver. And don't get me wrong, there are expectations in this Christian life. But Jesus should be the first and foremost love in our lives. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks asking God to stir up those affections for Jesus within us once more. And as it pertains to the overall study of Luke, there is no established end date. And the astute student this morning will have already looked at the printed bulletin that was handed to you on on your way in and have noted that we have a text next week in the book of the Revelation. You get a note written home to your mom in green pen, but you do not get a gold star or extra recess time for the astute students. 
As the Spirit leads, we will weave in and out of other areas of the Bible to prepare us for or to round out where Luke will take us. That's our orientation as we begin. Now, rather than starting our time by recounting successes that we may have enjoyed or or challenges we may have faced in 2022, I want to invite us each to take a break. I want us to each take a break from the dread of determining how we're going to make 2023 count or how to bounce back from 2022's defeats. I want to start out our time in a different way. I want us to start out our time by playing a trivia game. What sort of trivia, you ask? Bible trivia. I hope you knew that was coming. Let's start with this. There's just a few questions. They'll come overhead. Who wrote more of the New Testament than any other person? Do you know? Oh, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You want to say Paul because he wrote so many books of the New Testament. But in in terms of the actual count of words, it's Luke who wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. He wrote, we have confidence, he wrote two books, the gospel that bears his name and the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles is a history of the early Christian movement. Not only is Luke's gospel the longest of the four, but it's the only one with a sequel. Those two books together comprise the biggest chunk of the New Testament that's authored by a single person. Okay, one for me, zero for y'all. Okay, next question. I did. I did. It's okay. I'm giving you extra time. What is the only gospel written by a Gentile? Luke. Luke. Luke was a Gentile believer. He's likely converted under the ministry of Paul. And just as Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, Luke was written for a Gentile audience. In fact, it seems to have also been written for a particular Gentile, but we'll get to more of that shortly. Next question. Which gospel tells us most about the birth of Jesus? Luke. Y'all, I think y'all are picking up on where we're going with this. See, John doesn't tell us anything about the events surrounding the nativity of Jesus. Instead, John takes us to the cosmic, to the theological view of Jesus as the Logos, the Word of God. Matthew writes about the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective, and he records the visit of the Magi and the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. Mark includes no information on the nativity of Jesus, and Mark just jumps right into the action that has to do with John the Baptist's public ministry. Luke. Luke, however, takes us all the way to the back to the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. We learn about John's parents, whose names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke is the only gospel to give a story from Jesus' boyhood. Now, by the way, we are so rich for having four biographical sketches of Jesus from four different vantage points. The four Gospels, they don't conflict with one another. Rather, they complement each other beautifully. It's almost like having the Gospel in stereophonic sound or, or perhaps a literary composite 3D image of Jesus. That's what we have between the four. 
Okay, next question. Let's see if y'all are awake. Which gospel mentions prayer more than any other? You should know where we're going with this by now. That would be Luke. Luke often mentions Jesus praying or teaching about prayer. Jesus prays at, at his baptism. He often goes off into the wilderness to pray alone. He prays before choosing his apostles. He prays for Peter. He prays that Peter's faith would not waver. He prays for his executioners from the cross. And Luke also includes some of Jesus' teachings on prayer that we find nowhere else. Those teachings like the parable of the neighbor at midnight and the persistent widow. In fact, Luke mentions prayer more than all of the other three gospel writers combined. Sometimes Luke is called the gospel of prayer. And some of the most beloved Bible stories are also only found in Luke. The prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the walk to Emmaus. He gives us the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the only parable where one of the characters is given a name. Last question. Last question. What doctor traveled with the Apostle Paul? Luke. The gospel itself doesn't mention the name of its author, but the strong tradition through the centuries has been that it was written by Luke, a traveling companion of the, of the Apostle Paul. In fact, as you read in the book of Acts, you'll notice near the end that the narration slips from the third person singular to the first person plural. All of a sudden, instead of saying Paul got on the ship, as Luke writes, it says we got on the ship. Whoever wrote Luke in Acts was with Paul on some of his journeys. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul greets friends who might be reading the letter and sends greetings from those who are with him. And among them, Paul says, is Luke, the beloved physician. So Luke is a doctor. Now, the thing about medicine then is that it was way different back then. Doctors weren't always among the, the financial upper crust with eight years of medical school. They were more a part of the artisan class, and they they would become doctors in the same way that you might become a blacksmith today. You do so by training under one until you are one. Now, this Luke writes to us, he's highly literate, and he's obviously a great writer. And you and I should thank God that Luke is not like the doctors today, because we can actually read what he wrote. And one thing that is abundantly clear when you read Luke is that the entrance of Jesus into the world changes everything. Changes everything. The gospel has arrived in the person of Jesus, and that changes everything. And this morning's text is known as Luke's prologue, and I suspect that these four verses get the same treatment that the genealogies of the Bible often get. The treatment that these get are something like to what amounts uh, to what we do when we're watching a show on any one of our, our, our favorite streaming services like Netflix or Hulu or Apple TV. If you've ever watched an episode on one of those television shows, we each know that the shows start immediately with its introduction that has some theme song and some dramatic scenes that don't send us to the edge of our seats but send us looking for our remote so we can mash on that button that says, skip introduction. 
Did you know on Netflix, that button gets pushed 136 million times a day? We skip intros to shows, but we should never skip intros in the Bible. They're packed with important bits of information that God wanted there. If we didn't skip this intro, this is what we'll find. What we find by not skipping the intro is the gospel is truth. And believing upon it calls for us to live for Christ. Now, our world seems to have given up on the idea of truth, though. When I was a kid, I remember having news that would tell us what actually happened. Yet sometime during my life, we started having news that told us what happened and what we ought to think about it. Now, it seems we've gone to news that tells us what we want to hear and only provides us uh, whatever it is that's in support of that view. And whether you're a conservative or a moderate or a liberal, there's an, there's an echo, chamber, echo chamber out there to back up what you want to believe. We don't just feel entitled to our own opinions. We feel entitled to our own facts. But there's some good news for us this morning. I didn't wake up on January 1st, 2023, wanting to talk politics. And here's some better news for you. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. And philosophically, we live in a late postmodernism, which concludes that every point of view is merely a view from a point. We've lost a sense of a big story that we all share. And no arena is more saturated in a subjective understanding of truth than matters of faith are. The agreed understanding goes something like this. I believe what I want to believe. You believe what you want to believe. And what we're going to agree to do is never talk to one another about what we believe. Exchange is I'm not going to tell you just how ridiculous it is for you to believe what you believe. If there's any universal terms or any overarching narrative held today, it's only that spiritual reality, it's too vast or unknowable for any single faith to have it all. Have you heard about the six blind men and the elephant? It's a parable that goes something like that there were six blind men who heard about the existence of elephants and they wanted to know about what an elephant was like. And one day they heard that there was a man with an elephant and, and that, the, that the elephant could be approached and that they could inspect it. And so one blind man, he reaches out and he grabs the elephant's tail as blind as he is. And he says, ah, an elephant is very much like a rope. Another blind man grabbed the elephant's leg and he says, ah, an elephant is very much like a tree trunk. Another man felt the side of the elephant, and he said, Ah, the elephant is very much like a wall. Another one touched the elephant's ear, and he said, Ah, the elephant is very much like a fan. One grabbed the elephant's uh, tusk, and he said, Ah, the elephant is like a spear. And another one grabbed the elephant's trunk, and he said, Oh, the elephant is like a great snake. Which one's right? Each blind man reported correctly from their limited experience, but they were also all wrong. They were also all wrong because their perspective was so limited. And so it is, the moral goes, the commonly held moral today, so it is with God and faith. 
And that sounds pretty good to our postmodern ears. It's spiritual reality. It's too vast. It's far too unknowable. We only have a part of it. It seems like a humble posture to take in relationship with matters to God. It also seems to put everyone on level ground and make us feel good, which for some of us this morning, we think that that's what faith is about. That's the point, just to make us feel good. So this philosophy, this way of thinking, it has us then all concluding. Maybe all the religions are just different paths that are climbing the same mountain. But you and I don't get to do that. We can't because there's actually a seventh man in that parable. Did you realize that? The narrator. The narrator sees the whole elephant. And when we tell the story of the elephant and the six blind men, we actually make ourselves that seventh man. The presence of the narrator really defeats the whole point of the parable. The parable is actually a subtle faith claim that all faiths can be reconciled as touching different aspects of the same reality. Yet the parable fails to capture that the truth claims of various faiths are often mutually contradictory. Consider one person claiming an elephant is as big as a house and another claiming it's as small as it could fit in their pocket. If one is right, the other must be wrong. What if an elephant could talk? What if an elephant could tell you about itself? Well, the Abrahamic faiths are built upon the idea of divine revelation that God spoke his word. Christianity and Islam and Judaism, they believe that God has spoken and revealed truth that must be obeyed. Yet if Islam's claims are true, if they're true, then Jesus is just a prophet and he's, in the ordering of things, he's below Muhammad in all the the, the hierarchy of prophets in Islam. And that contradicts what Christians teach about Jesus, the truth from Scripture. If you're looking to build a a reading list for 2023, I would commend to you a book that's titled Mere Christianity. It's written by a classic Christian author from the last century whose name is C.S. Lewis. He chronicles his journey from atheism to Christian faith in Mere Christianity. And he says this, If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all, the other reli- that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake, though. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all these religions, even the strangest ones, contain at least a hint of the truth. Lewis says, when I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race has, have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. But when I became a Christian, I was able to take a more open view. But of course, being a Christian does mean knowing that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and the others are wrong. As an arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than the others. And because all truth belongs to God, we can find some truth in all religions and faith systems. 
Buddhism has some worthy ideas. But I ain't ever going to be found being a Buddhist. And at the end of the day, Christians believe that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. In his virgin birth, in his victorious life, in his his vicarious death, in his resurrection. They all come together to frame a new reality. Luke believed this. And the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world is a definitive game changer. The old order of things has been fulfilled and a new day has dawned. We look at verse 1 and he begins, he says, I've undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. Luke's aware of other gospels. For instance, the gospel according to Mark was already written as Luke writes. But what Mark is led to write is just brief and focuses on the chronicling of things that Jesus did. Luke is led of the Holy Spirit to provide context to it all. Luke is more of a storyteller and a a historian. And Luke demonstrates, among other things, that Jesus didn't come to, to lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. This was the big question that Christians faced as they evangelized the Roman world. The question was, wasn't the, this Lord that you're proclaiming crucified by the Roman government? Luke takes a positive posture towards peace in Rome. He puts the story of Jesus in the context of the wider human history. For instance, when, when we gathered on Christmas Eve and the kiddos were up here with me, we read from chapter 2 of Luke, and we read that the, Jesus was born when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We will find, as Luke writes, many instances of secular history introduced. We look in verse 2, and we see that Luke refers to eyewitnesses and those who were ministers of the word that delivered this message of Jesus to him and to others. Now, in any court, there's nothing quite like the testimony of eyewitnesses. If you want to know what happened, you've got to talk to the people who were there. And Luke bases all that we're going to study in this gospel upon the evidence of these eyewitnesses. I mean, it's just possible that Luke learned about the nativity of Jesus by interviewing Mary. When he mentions ministers of the word, he's talking about the apostles and those who communicated the apostolic message. The Gospels were written after the epistles or the letters, if you like, of the New Testament when people noticed that the apostles were dying. There was an urgency about capturing their remembrances of Jesus. Jesus never wrote a book. Jesus instead entrusted his message to uh, to the witnesses of his life and his teachings. Luke was not one of these apostles, but Luke's gospel is apostolic in that it captures the teaching of the apostles. Verse 3, we see that, that, uh, he, that it had this story, this message had been followed closely for some time past by Luke. And so he's led of the Spirit to write in an orderly account at the encouragement of someone named Theophilus. Luke had done his homework. He investigated everything from the beginning. He sorted through the many traditions about Jesus to try to get to the truth of what really happened. And Luke states that it's important for him to write an orderly account, putting things in the correct chronological order. It's important to Luke. Other gospel writers aren't 
as interested in this. John, for instance, is organized around theological truths about Jesus. He puts the triumphal entry in chapter 2 instead of the last week of Jesus' life. Matthew organizes his gospel around the teachings of Jesus. If you thumb through Matthew, you notice big blocks is where Jesus is speaking. Luke follows Mark's basic chronology, but it adds a lot of detail that Mark leaves out. We should probably talk about, then, the Bible's relationship with history. Our Christian scriptures are both a treasure for historians and they're treasures for scientists, but they're also a great frustration to them. I mean, the Bible, for sure, is an invaluable tool for understanding history. It contains records that exist nowhere else. And since we're talking about Luke, I'll just mention uh, Luke's description of a shipwreck that comes at the end of the book of Acts. It's regarded as one of the best descriptions of ancient maritime travel in existence. Our Our understanding of travel by sea in the first century would be much poorer without the details he provides. There are many examples of the ways that the Bible informs history. The Bible also frustrates historians. The scriptures are interested in different questions that our modern historians are asking. There may be a very significant person in history, but the Bible just dismisses them in a verse or two. The Bible was written to instruct us about God's faithfulness in the midst of our human unfaithfulness. Its use of history is highly selective. This is the same that's true for science. For years, scientists have been asking the big questions of how and when our universe came to be. And if you hand scientists our scriptures, they're going to read at the beginning of the book that God spoke and it came to be. And that may satisfy the faithful, but for the scientists who's without Christ, it frustrates Our six days of creation do nothing to jive with their observations. And when they read about the couple in the garden who were with a talking snake, they throw up their hands altogether. Is Genesis chapter 1 through 3 true? Absolutely. But it's answering a different question. God's speaking to the who and the why of creation. Scientists in science can't begin to answer the question of purpose. And as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Luke addresses his gospel to someone named Theophilus. And this person, too, is mentioned in the opening line of Acts. Well, who is this guy? We don't know. But this is, this is a Greek name that means friend of God. And some have suggested that maybe Luke uses this name as a general term for believers in Jesus. But that theory isn't supported because he refers to him as most excellent, Theophilus. This would be the customary way to greet a government official or someone of importance. It seems that maybe Theophilus is a recent convert or maybe he's at least an inquirer about the Christian faith. It's very likely that he supported the ministry of Luke to to take time away from being a doctor, to, to do his studies, to record this word, to do all the hard work of investigating and compiling and writing this biography of Jesus. All for what purpose? We find that in verse 4. 
And when we're young, we're taught to ask the questions of passages that we read like a journalist, learning about the five W's and the H, the who, what, where, why, when, and how. These are the questions every trained journalist should ask in order to get the story straight. And something very unique happened at the coming of Jesus. That unique thing is that God stepped into our human history. Our faith, therefore, is inextricably tied to events that happen in first century Palestine. In the Christ event, the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how, they all become part of our core message. The birth, the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, they all come together to frame a new reality for us. The claim that Jesus is Lord, it's historical, it's theological, it's political, it's economic, it's scientific, and it goes on. Our salvation was accomplished through God's acts in human history. We can't know our salvation unless we know this story. And Luke says that he's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to us so that we might be sure of the things that we've been taught. Well, my salvation has a past and it has a future. It has roots and it has wings. What God did in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they will reverberate for all eternity. They reverberate reverberate for all eternity because the gospel is truth. And believing upon it calls us to live for Christ. Well, in what way? In what way? The gospel is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God breaking into the world in a new way. It's Jesus who lived a perfect life, taught us the truth about God, that Jesus dies and that he rises again, and he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside and among his followers. And by doing these things, Jesus has created a community, what we know as the church, the community of people who are being transformed. They're being transformed to what purpose or to what ends? They're being transformed to be like him. They're being sent to share in his mission of transforming the world to be more and more like the way God wants it to be. There's a missing ingredient in this. And next week we're going to find out what that is. But I want to ask, are you living for Christ today? See, Luke writes as a man who found his life in Christ. He does not write as a man who is someone who is trying to find life by laboring for Christ. The truth is that unless you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you ain't living. You remain, as the Bible says, dead in your trespasses and sins. You need to be made right before God, and that is only done by believing upon Jesus Christ and to salvation. Friend, won't you come and receive the life that Jesus stands ready to give? He's the only truth. Not your truth, not my truth, not someone's truth. He's the truth. And he loves you. And he will receive you with open arms. Friend, won't you come today? We pray. God, we thank you for this glorious new day of this new year. 
Lord, we thank you that we've gathered uh, and we've come to celebrate not a new year, but your son's death and resurrection. We come to to celebrate the transformation that he offers and invites us to walk into. He transforms us from death unto life everlasting. God, we thank you that we can come and we can celebrate and we can praise Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior and Lord, who so happily abandoned heaven for us. God, would you do the work of making us new today? Father, would you do the work of transforming us more in the likeness of your Son? So that as we leave from this place, we leave so in the power of your Spirit, commissioned to live for him. God, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Church Scott will lead us in a hymn of invitation. I invite you to stand as he does. What is the Spirit of the living God inviting you to do this morning?